Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry and this week I'm joined by Sarah, Dario and Alicia for the news before getting into a chat with Johan Borelli. Now, this one gets a bit complicated. To go straight to the Johan Borelli podcast, go to the 14 minute and 30 second mark. However, we had something of a disaster and one of our audio files corrupted. So for the first 25, 30 minutes, we're actually on backup audio. So if you want to jump to the part where the audio gets better, go to the 40 minute mark. That first 25 minutes conversation covers Johan's first forays into enduro racing and it is really, really interesting. However, if you can't quite stomach it, I understand and you can skip forward. This week on the website, Jesse May Morgan put out a very interesting poll about the internet's favourite topic and that is... Uh, at what regularity is destroying derailleurs okay? Is it okay at all? There is, of course, a little-known thing called the gearbox, which has been threatening to break into mainstream mountain biking for about 200 years. But for whatever reason, it, it hasn't quite got there. Dario, you're a man of a man of learned science. You're a man that embraces the new exciting thing. Why haven't you got a gearbox? Actually, how many derailleurs do you break? And why haven't you got a gearbox? Both questions. Um, catastrophically, like less than one a year, which is great. That's um, still, but even well, think, let's, are we talking one a year or, le- or like one every two years? Less than. I'd say like average <laughs> yeah, but, 0. 0.5. Yeah, none is like less every, than. <laughs> every couple of years, I feel like I'll pick up a stick or hit a rock or something and, and that's it. But, um, you know, catastrophic and then like annoying level of damage are different things, I think. And- but do you ride um left yeah. or right foot forward i'm right forward and do you think that makes a difference um uh i could see it making a difference in like what your better corner is like if you're a better left or a better right because like if you're a better left corner maybe you're like slapping the derailleur into turns more or like potentially into something in the way i don't know um but do you know what I think is... A- yeah, I, I don't have a gearbox on my bike because there aren't that many gearbox bikes. I do um, have a gearbox on my bike currently, but we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Sarah, how many... And I, I shifted your little gearbox bike around and it's it's. Yeah, cool. it is cool. Nice. I feel like, um, yeah. honestly, I, I, I do quite like... It. We'll, we'll get to it in a moment though. Sarah, how, how many derailleurs are you breaking? Decimal points per year, the Dario system, if we could. I think a de- pretty small decimal points. Like I was like... In the past 10 years, like, oh, I've broken some derailleurs. And then I was like, I don't know, that was like longer than 10 years ago that I was like racing cross country and breaking, you know, catastrophically breaking derailleurs. I feel like, you know, sometimes you'll get a stick in it and it'll, you know, it, it won't shift properly, but you can kind of fix it enough that you don't need to like go and buy new parts of derailleurs. So, I mean, I think I'm in that like one to three in the past 10 years. Like I can't currently think of any instances where I couldn't ride home because my derailleur was broken. And do you, um, do you think you're more likely, were you breaking more during racing when perhaps you're riding with a bit more reckless abandon? Well, it's interesting because I raced um, like cross country mountain biking growing up and I broke a whole lot of derailleurs then, but then I raced enduro when I kind of moved to BC, maybe five, six years ago, I was doing quite a lot of enduro races and I can't think of any instances there where I couldn't finish an enduro race because I'd broken my derailleur. So I think it's more like the technology in my riding have evolved uh, more than through the times, basically. 
And Alicia, another endurist, as I believe you, you like to be referred to oh as. Oh, God. <laughs> How many derailers were you breaking in your racing days? Because there were, you know, when Enduro started, Jared Graves, I believe, and, you know, um, a number of notable racers would ride around with a spare one in their backpack. You know? The whole derailleur? Oh, wow. Yeah, the whole derailleur. <laughs> <just Yeah>. like... <laughs> no, everything. Yeah. You know, I'm going to put myself still in the very few category. Like, sure, one to three in the last 10 years, kind of like what Sarah said. Very, very few. I think there is kind of like a fear side of it where we have this big, dangly, shiny, expensive thing hanging off all of our bikes that it feels vulnerable to even risk getting that near rocks, even if it, it's probably not going to hit on the rocks. But like, it feels scary. I think that's a really great point because the two most sort of, two of the most valuable things you can buy for a mountain bike to hang off a frame are expensive carbon cranks and expensive derailers with carbon bits on, both of which are the closest thing to rocks. Are we not doing this completely backwards? I mean, carbon cranks are also... What's up with, like, let's just take a moment and just think we have a thing that can shatter an impact and then we have it as the closest thing to the ground. Is that I put it as one of our main contact points to the bike. Yeah. There aren't that many contact points between our bodies and our bikes. We should kind of think through which ones we want. Do you think that you could plot the, you know, um, the likelihood to mistrust derailers as a concept and the likelihood to mistrust carbon cranks? Dario, do you think there's any tracking between any correlation? I feel like we all implicitly have to trust the derailleur, save for like the fraction. Speak for yourself. I've got a gearbox, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. Welcome to the twenty-first century. The the broad (laughs) one point five percent of us who ride either gearbox bikes or single speeds. I think everybody else just like has to get along with the derailleur, whether it's like you know some fancy new thing or or like a reliable ten-speed thing. But uh, carbon cranks are like very much an elective decision. And yeah. perhaps one not that well conceived. Um, you know, I, I have, they're actually the only carbon part on my personal bike right now are carbon cranks. Um, yeah, wild. Because I mean, I think, um, I think it's, it's interesting to see even SRAM move away from that slightly with the, mm-hmm. the alloy ones. But hey, that's, uh, maybe that's a story for a different time. Um, we also have a lot of racing news. And the racing news is the silly season is finally over take down the bunting throw out the tree we're we're beginning in 24 the uci list has been announced except there's one big name who's kind of been slightly late to the party and that is aaron Gwynn. what what's going on there sarah do, do we know well i reached out to him last week uh when we saw that his name wasn't on the list and we were like, has he stopped racing? Like, what's gone on, going on here? Like, usually that's kind of the spoiler alert. It's like, if you haven't got your press release in or your video and, you know, launched your team already, you're kind of, you've miss, missed the boat. Like, it's going to be public at that time. And so if your name's not on that list, like, that usually means that you don't have a team for the coming season. But he reached out and he said, I don't know for whatever reason our team wasn't on the list. And then uh, today the list is actually been updated and there is a Gwyn racing with uh Aaron Gwyn, Seth Sherlock, and Michael. Ah, he's a Canadian junior rider. What's his his last name? Mikey de something. So um yeah, he's got a, a roster of three three riders. De La Salle, sorry, Mikey there. Michael De La Salle is the third rider on that team. So um yeah, I guess late to the show, but stoked to see that he's still riding and gonna have a feet a team for 2024. 
And there was me thinking De La Soul was, wasn't that a, a pop group from the 80s or 90s? De La Soul, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's just me. Now, Dario, now that silly season's over, we've only got about three years to wait until the first race. What do you think these riders are going to get up to in the meantime? Do you think that it's going to be a lot of testing? Do you think that there's going to be a lot of preparation? And do you think that the collective audience has enough attention span to go away and not hear about anything for six months and then come back and expect it to be a big fanfare in June or whenever it is? Is it actually six months until the next, the first race? No, I don't think, he's I mean, it's getting it's months like, and years mixed up. It's, it's like three months, guys. Not it's three, not, years. Okay. It's three months. It's, May, it's like May. May 5th. That's like you know, February, March, April. That's three months. Yeah, three months. Three Seems like a long time to me. <laughs> that's, I mean, I think that's a short enough span that like people are now just in the like excited, bated breath phase of things. But I can be excited for three whole months. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, be blue in sure. the face if I go bated breath. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd venture a guess that most teams are like, in the thick of testing like you know i think probably different programs run differently but most pro racers are trying to get like on a consistent predictable setup at this point so they're like tying up any of the like super erratic testing that they might be doing and now they're just like training getting time on the bike you know i feel like i've seen a lot of pro racers like riding road bikes in arizona so and others just yes. like going to hardline for their first yeah. race of the year you yeah, know like Ronan Dunn doing on a casual setup. Warm up. he's like yeah i'm just yeah. gonna take my new mondraker to new zealand or yeah and yeah and like <laughs> everybody's hardline. in new zealand as well yeah yeah um except us All except right. us yeah <laughs> um speaking of travels alicia you Hello. went to mexico to go paragliding yes that is correct There's a lot of questioning in that statement. But yes, I just got back from Mexico for some paragliding and it was amazing. Uh, Yeah. Can you, were you doing any, because I know you do some events and you do some kind of racing stuff. Can you explain to me how paraglide racing works? Yeah. So do you know what orienteering is? Yes. I'm terrible at it. Well, (laughs) at one point I was explaining it to my dad and he was like, so it's like orienteering in the sky. Oh my gosh. I was like, kind (laughs) of. I guess. So essentially every morning there's a set of GPS turn points announced. Um, and these turn points are anything from like a hundred meter radius to like, you know, 10 kilometers radius, or you have a lot of options and some of them give you a lot of options in what terrain you fly over and kind of where you expect to find air going up essentially. Cause kind of the whole strategy is trying to be in air that's going up more than air that's not going up so that you can stay you don't fall out of the high. air that makes sense yeah exactly <laughs> stay higher and go farther and keep stringing it together over distances and it's pretty sweet like i did my first flight that was over six hours um just recently oh. and that was pretty fun and like all the other days i was flying like five plus hours and so it was like not really a one-off thing well, slightly. Wow. The six-hour thing was a one-off thing. Six but is it's, a long time. Do you like eat it's, in the sky? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's it, so cool. <laughs> just me, like full-on bird just, status. Like. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It just seems to me like that's a... Because I know that obviously I have a very different understanding of it than you do, Alicia. But to me, being in the sky is clearly a place where you could die at any moment. That's that's how I view it. Unless so you're in an six, airplane, right? Are you are you scared of flying? Well, yeah, but that's so, different. That's that's not me having to do anything. Right. You know? In the sky, you're actually very, very far from everything else. And 
you're not going to hit anything. So, like, there's actually pretty much <laughs> nothing up there that could hurt you. Except <laughs> literally everything beneath you, potentially. <laughs> but the only thing that could potentially hurt you is the ground, which is really right. far away from you. So yeah, kind of you a, don't get the That's a comforting air. thought. Have to just figure out staying away from that, pretty much. Which is the whole now, goal of doing well in the sport anyway. should be the anyway. Boeing uh, tagline. <laughs> just like figuring out how to stay away we from the ground. keep you off the ground. Boeing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then now, landing um, is important too. You want to yeah. get to your final For sure, for sure. I mean, every flight does inevitably end with going back to the ground every single time. Um, but we make it work every time. So I can't claim to like be super well-versed in, you know, all of it or... You know, I think I, I don't know. I see my goals as still really far ahead of where I want to end up, but it's also just so exciting and pretty magical to get to be going through the process of working on it. Well, if you think so about cool. it, like most people, like the maximum amount of airtime you get is like if you do a jump, like what, like <laughs> when are you flying, Henry or Dario? Like Alicia's up there for six hours. Like we don't even get yeah. six seconds, like maybe 0.6 if you're... <laughs> Yeah. yeah so true like dark dark uh, fest is going on right now and they're getting like the biggest jumps in the world and are they in the air for they're like or two seconds? or three like, seconds like, maybe yeah 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 <laughs> sorry i love seeing that dark fest footage when you just see how the best riders in the world who know you know who are amazing and just see them get like focused to do something so dangerous i think there's something so like human about that mm-hmm. you know? yes. talking yeah. themselves into it <laughs> Um, speaking of you know pushing yourself and your writing this week we have a podcast with Ian Borelli who was he came down the studio just an absolute delight I really really had such a good time hanging out with him and getting to know his story a little bit better now as I said in the intro sadly the audio corrupted which is so annoying for the first video file. So we're using backup audio before we then go on to the last 45 minutes of the podcast where the audio is a lot better. So just again, if the less than fantastic audio that we pretty much ran through audio auto-tune isn't great, please skip to around the 45 minute mark and it's going to get suddenly a lot better. But either way, I hope you enjoy it because it was just tremendous fun to record. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Henry. So, kind of racer, coach, kind of almost sort of pioneer in the YouTube world for your kind of tech breakdowns. Mm-hmm. How do you describe yourself and what you do? I don't know. What's been the feeling period where you felt most, I don't know, most aligned with one particular thing? Now, now would you say you're a coach or you, are you a YouTuber that coaches how would you so i i think i've never already been a youtuber um i was a professional i think i would i would describe myself as a professional mountain biker mm. and mountain biking has been delivering such a incredible kind of variety of things to into my life like it, it was at first i was racing downhill uh walk up I was not really good at it. <laughs> Probably relatively speaking. I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was good, but not, uh, not to make it uh, as a pro. And then I switched to enduro, and then I became pro in enduro. And then during COVID, I kind of swapped my career to become a coach. 
And then at the same time before I started YouTubing as well, like a little bit of YouTube. And I think that now I'm missing the racing aspect of things. And then this year I'm I'm going back a little bit. In the, How are you? Yeah, good for you, man. I am so being back uh, at the gym quite a bit, and I have a few uh, a few races planned that we can we can talk about. Well, we'll, we'll get to because yeah. when when you came to being a professional racer, you kind of turned pro as it was relatively late. Everybody think. Yeah, I, I turned pro when I was twenty nine. Twenty nine. Wow. Um, in two thousand and fourteen, that was actually my first year as a pro. So it's been ten years, I think. Yeah? Mm. And I started racing. I did my first race ever in nineteen ninety three. So it took me twenty one years <laughs> <laughs> to make it happen. Um, but yeah, and that's that's really when I decided to make the switch to Enduro. That the Enduro World Series got created. And then things kind of things things happen. Um, if you don't, if it's not too much on the nose. I mean, you were a very successful enduro racer. Mm-hmm. You know, you were with some magician, which a huge setup, common out. So you clearly had whatever it was needed to be a professional mountain bike racer. You've got it. Mm-hmm. Why did it take it so long for it to happen for you? Do you think? Well, it's like becoming a becoming a professional mountain biker so a professional mountain biker is someone who's actually that's his job a big yes. job huh? like you're getting paid and you don't have to do any other job beside that it's that's your main job um, and I think it's uh, for me well first of all there's not many people who actually make it as professional there's, there's not many in Darnie there's not many in cross country there's not many in Angel. Um so it's uh, it's tough it's really yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard yes and the, the commitment that's required to uh, to make it happen is really uh, it's really hard. So if you if you don't have um, if you don't have the, 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 the family you know like the money behind behind it, it's really you need to have a job on the side. You need to do all these things and then train at the same time and all these things. And sometimes it's it's really hard to to make that step and become pro. And I think that was my case where I had to work and I had to study at school and I had to race and then all my money was going through that. And it was uh, just took a long time. But the dream, my dream was always there. And I knew that it was uh, like it was going to happen at some point in my life. So. And would your first professional contract have been with Giant? My first professional contract, yeah, in, uh, with Giant. And what was it like? Was there a sense of like arrival? Like, oh my God. Or was there a sense of beginning? Like, now I can go on. It was, it was the, for me, it was a sense of beginning. Yes. You know, in a way. Because I, I remember, so 2012 was my last um, season at Hildary. And I used to race a few angels here and there, Mega Avalanche, Maxi Avalanche, a few like local angels in France. And, um, and I loved it. And then at the end of 2012, I decided to make the switch to go full on in Angel. So 2013 was the first year where the Angel World Series started. And I remember being like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I showed up at the first ever uh, EWS in Italy, in Punta Ara. Yeah. And I remember um, seeing, like, no, no one knew exactly what we were going to, uh, to see, yes. what to expect, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there was, like, big structures everywhere. I remember Santa Cruz, Giants, all the brands were there, like uh, Brian Lopes, Greg Minard, Steve, everybody was there. And so, in me... For me, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, this is actually serious. This is a serious series. And, uh, and I want to make it happen in this, uh, like in this environment. And I remember seeing the Giant Factory of our team. And I was, so at the, in 2013, I was sponsored by Giant Friends. Right, yes. And they gave me 
it's kind of funny. They gave me a frame, a complete bike, and 2,000 euro budget for the, for the full season. <laughs> the first season, 2,000 euro. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember showing up at that first race, and my goal for the full season was to beat the Giant Factory uh, riders. So Adam Craig, Josh Carson, Carl Decker, and which I kind of achieved. And I remember, so I was talking to, I was talking to the, to the team manager, Joe Stubb, and um, with a broken English, my English was, was completely uh, non-existent. And uh, we were middle of the season and I was starting to have some conversation with them. And, uh, and they were like, well, you are, we, we are not necessarily looking for another rider. But if you can make it into the top 10, uh, that's going to help us a lot to make the decision. And I was in Val d'Isère in France. At the beginning of the race, we had this chat. And then I got my first top 10 at this race. I got ninth. And then I came back to see him after the race. And I was like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> where do we go from here? And then that was it. That was the that was the beginning for me as a pro, and then the, the year after, I had the full full support going to California for team camps and having the the, the real support as a pro racer. Yeah, I mean, just doing whether it's a office job, a you know, you know, working with your hands, whatever it is, doing something for forty hours a week is ex- it does take it out, mm. and then training on top of that. Like, I think even being a racer, and especially at elite level, which you know, I don't know. Have any experience of having seen it? What it does to prove that nervous system over a season, you know, they're constantly basically putting themselves in, in quite a lot of danger. Mm-hmm. And the coping with the nerves and the preparation, and to try and integrate that with earning a living for, I imagine it is enormously. It's, it's, it's super tough. Yeah. So it's uh, that that transition can be uh, can be really really hard, and it can take uh, it can take a long time. And seeing, I mean, if you excuse the, the pun, giant in my mind. The way mountain bike racing is something of like the sleeping giant. It's mm-hmm. a really interesting company because it's huge. It has a lot of um, kind of sway in the bike industry, not just to the bike supply, but also manufacture other people's mm-hmm. bikes. Um, and every now and then they tend to have like bursts forward in their racing scene. And then yeah. maybe they'd lie lower other periods. What was it like from the outside, your perception of what a pro racer would be like? And how did it compare on that first season? Was it everything you'd hoped? Was it... Some, because sometimes in mountain biking there are some really things we do really well mm-hmm. but sometimes there's also elements of sort of maybe oh sometimes when I was when I was working with teams I was surprised by how it sort of sometimes it felt like a bit of an old boys club like oh no one was really that like sometimes there's a lack of professionalism if I'm honest with you yes and I wonder what that was like as someone that probably sought it thought but one day when you be professional then you get there and then sometimes professional mountain biking on the inside isn't what you think it's going to be from the outside. What was your first couple of seasons? Yeah. Actually, I think for me with Giant was actually uh, everything that I really dreamed of really happened with. Like entering this, uh, entering this team was, was quite uh, it was totally a dream. It was Danny Hart, uh, Andrew Disling at the time, and the, the Andrew crew, uh, the Marcelo Peter. There was, there was such a strong team. And I remember showing up at that first team camp in California and I was like, wow, actually, there is all the tools here for me to perform. Mm-hmm. And they really, just really made me feel like, if you work out here, we are really gonna give you everything we have like, to, to make you achieve your dreams. And it was, it was, really, uh, it was really incredible. And then, so the first, the first couple of years, it was really this way. 
and then and then with teams and, and structures like things kind of change you know like the, the vibe kind of yeah. life evolves and then at some point I felt like for me it was time to to move on and go somewhere else. So that's when I made the switch to uh, to Bonsai. Because even when you're on that giant team, you were. I remember you doing some videos on you know the drop bar bikes at Whistler. Yeah, out there shredding, which was very different. It was kind of it felt like a sign of things to come in terms of how you expressed yourself mm-hmm. and your personality. Was that something from you or something from Giant? Were they like we've got this slightly kind of um, we've got this real character less. Kim was also was it just you doing it and then be like, oh my god, this is great. That was that was totally totally everything for me. Mm. That was uh, I think I always been kind of a funny guy in a way. Like I always kind of you know I'm kind of goofy and, and I like to play around. And then for me when I became pro, I still wanted to show that I didn't want to be that guy. Well, I'm super serious and all of a sudden like I'm a pro. Like I didn't want to have that to change my personality. And I was always looking back in the years where. You know, when I was struggling to make it happen, and uh, and I was living my dream. So I just uh, I remember actually talking about this bike. We were at the sea order, and then they gave me this um, this uh, TCX was it? It was a TCX. Yeah. yeah, it was not even a gravel bike. It was really like a cross bike. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they gave it to me, and I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to do? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted the one bike at first, and then they gave me that, and then um, a week later, I that was in Worcester, and I was kind of like. What am I gonna do? And then I went to River and through it, like big skis and kind of sketchy stuff. And I did the first kind of video with that. And he went to be viral. And I was like, okay, maybe I should take it to the bike park. So I showed up full time, <laughs> yes. full like riding a dirt merchant line. And I did another video on that. And then, uh, and yeah, they loved it. it. Was cool. As you transition from Giant mm-hmm. to Commenter, again, you know, Giant has a. I imagine quite a different approach, at least from the outside, to someone like Amatar, which seemingly are a lot more race-focused mm-hmm. than Jai. What was your reasoning for transitioning? And did you get a sense, was that was that part of racing, you potentially going deeper in the, in the company's DNA? Is this, what, what, was, what was your reasoning for, for going? I think we were with Giant at some point. Um, I think the effort were really going towards, uh, like the attention and the effort were going towards really Marcello and Josh Carson. Mm. And then I felt at some point I was like, okay, I, I kind of want to shine again. Mm. And with Comensal, they were just at the beginning of becoming what they are now, which is they are, they are huge and they have like all the biggest, fastest riders mm. ever. And I was just at the beginning of that. So it was a good opportunity for me to be that kind of, like the star of, of the brand. And I think that's really important as a professional mountain biker is to find the brands that really align with yourself and are gonna allow you to shine at, at the same time. And so with Comensal, it was the perfect timing for that. And so I went there and I was a bit like the, kind of their number one guy in everything. And, uh, and it was amazing like video projects everywhere, the attention, development of the bikes and everything. And it was, uh, it was right. Did speaking French help as well a bit? Or at that point were you kind of comfortable in English where? At that point I was really comfortable with English. So it was not like, uh, it was actually, it's actually like now we're living in North America. It's actually a bit more of a pain to deal with French people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When did you come to Canada? Was that for racing? Was that for a lifestyle thing? Lifestyle. And I moved here in 2014 
So I came for the first time in uh, 2013 uh, during Crackworks, and I loved the place. And in 2013, I was like, okay, I kind of I want to move here, and uh, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. I whilst you were on the common cell, you obviously tested the Grimdon. Yeah. Ref- I'll reflect upon that as to where you are now with you know, now you ride a probably a well with those common cells are pretty big but we're probably closer thankfully not quite at the Grim, Grim Donut geometry but we're getting we're, we're getting closer to there as it was the bike of the future um, what was that experience like reflecting on it back and when we saw the video it was quite astounding how fast you were going and how much noise that bloody thing made but how can I talk us through your experience of it it was a uh... It was a bit of a shock, actually, to be honest. And I think it was a shock to everyone. Because I remember, um, I remember being with, uh, with Mike Levy and then he showed me the bike and I was kind of, we were on the parking lot and I kind of jumped on the bike for the first time. And then as soon as I jumped on the bike, I felt kind of good on it. And I was like, oh my God, this thing is going to be fast. And it was like, oh, I know, like he was kind of not really taking me too seriously. And it was a jump just on the side of the road. And then I first time quite quite of a decent sized jump and I kind of do it perfectly and I and I looked at him and I was like, I think this thing is gonna be faster than my race bike. Wow. And uh, and then sure enough it was actually uh, migrating. So the, the bike was like a piece of shit in a way because <laughs> the bottom bracket was too low, yes. like the, the cranks were like hitting the ground all the time. And I think there was uh, some slight adjustment to be made on the bike to make it really good. But uh, the bike was a beast. Like it was uh, like long slack. Like I was just, I just had to lean the bike, and then it was cornering like so easily. It was actually insane, like the speed that it was carrying. And I remember actually, like the day before, I didn't really sleep that night because I was like, maybe the fork is actually not gonna go into the travel because it's so slack. So slack, yeah. And then it was actually working quite well. And uh, and I, re- you know, when you try something and then you jump on it for the first time and it kind of feels good. Yeah. That's a good kind of feeling. And I remember so swapping from the green donut back to my comment side. And I remember going back on the comment side. I was like, oh my God, it doesn't feel so good anymore. <laughs> and that was like the bike that I was racing on. It was like my, my everyday bike. And how did Common South feel about that video? Was there any. So they didn't know. I didn't really say much. <laughs> you really it to be bad. But everybody, yeah. exactly. I was like, well, the, the, the thing is a joke. And like, you know, it's a, it's a joke. We, it's definitely not going to be faster than my, than my normal bike. And, uh, and I, I remember Max not being super happy when he saw the video. Uh, but, I, but I told him, I was like, hey, look, like, the bike is a, it's, and it's a joke. And it's a, it's a bad job because it's actually it's actually faster. That's the funniest bit. That's the punchline. Um, but the, the thing is that that really opened my eyes yeah. in terms of like geometry and how far can we go in in the evolution of biking. Do you think that that track was just suited towards the strengths of the Brinkdown? Definitely a little bit because it was like kind of long corner. There was a few like technical parts, but there was no few switchbacks at the top. But they are actually quite round. They are not really tight tight. And it was, there was no really slow tech areas on this track. So yes, definitely suited the Grand Donut quite well, but still. And did you change your, go back to your common style and change anything a bit to make it more donut Was it as it were? 
Very so that was my last year with Provencal. Well, because of the green donut test. Maybe actually. Now reflecting on that. Um, but then when I went to Gigi, I right away I asked for a size four. So long bike, short stem, and quite slack. And I failed to boot right away. So for a long time, I was really an advocate of long bike, uh, short stem, like really make it as close to the ground of as possible. And uh, you talk about reach figures there when you say long. Mm -hmm. How do you feel, because the grim donor has something that people, um, rec I talk about long rear ends a lot, that people will be rolling their eyes back over because they're so tired about me talking about it, but I like hear you talk about it. Because that from Dodo also had a very long rear end. Mm -hmm. Was that something that, you know, in terms of how we size bikes, so it's often to kind of cheat the reach. Yeah. You can go a size up, you can put a short stem Yeah. But sometimes we're quite baked in, in terms of um, rear end length. And what a lot of people perhaps sometimes don't realize is the difference in rear center length on an XL compared to a large isn't because the stays are longer, it's because they hang the bottom bracket in a different place yeah. on the front triangle. So we're sometimes really baked into these, these rear end sides. Did you get an opportunity to try any longer rear ends? And what, what, what was your interpretation of that rear end on that? Uh, but so what I think with the, with the going the left is that he was actually pedaling quite well. Like even if he was long and everything, like actually the fact that the rear end was longer, like the bike was actually tracking the ground quite well in the climbs. Mm -hmm. And then so when I swapped to the GG, the GG was actually quite long in the in the rear as well. It was like 450. Oh, okay, so it's good. So it was, it was yeah. kind of like that. Now, now with with uh, the VLC, the the bikes are more like kind of like kind of average. Kind of mm -hmm. the chainsaw is actually quite short in the rear, uh, the long long front triangle, slack slack angle. But yeah, I, I kind of like uh, every bike are different. It's kind of. And how do you think? Because I would hypothesize that we've got to sort of, I believe that a slack front, a long reach and a short rear end makes a mountain bike a very a safer place to be. Mm -hmm. Your weight's more rearward. It's, um, in terms of just tracking through stuff in a straight line, I think it can be better. However, I also think that to ride it aggressively, well, that setup doesn't necessarily suit people who really want to grab the bike, put the scruff on the neck, mm -hmm. because those people might want a a lot more front weight bias to really weight the front through three turns. Um, as a coach, and someone that's obviously probably seen more people ride and broken down more techniques than, than most, um, do you think there's any, that holds any water? Do you think there's any truth from that? And do you think that, what do you think is the most like, sort of not beginner, but everyday weekend warrior setup in terms of geometry that's going to be friendly to most people? Do you think it is the long? Do you think it's the short? Do you think it's middle of the road? I always, uh, I always say to people that a longer bike is going to be better. You are more centered. Mm. You don't have to do too much. You don't have to move as much on the bike because you are you are really centered on the bike and you are planted. So the bike is going to do a lot of the job for you. Now, if you want to go fast, faster on a long bike, you're going to have to move a bit harder. It's a bit, a bit uh, of a bigger thing to kind of move around. Mm. Um, but I think for me, like I'm always going to be on a longer kind of bike than it's required for my size. Mm. I, f I feel... Which is, yeah, I mean, there is a degree of first preference, but yeah. also the way a professional mountain biker weights the front yes. is, is just more extreme. Everything's catered towards it where someone like me, I'm basically 
an average Joe that wakes mm-hmm. up. So I probably want a little bit of help, whereas yeah. you probably have something that's a bit more alive anyway, and you're a bit more confident where that front wheel is underneath you consistently. Yeah. Um, because when we look back then, so Grid of Rarity, sadly, you know, fell into some real hardship uh, yeah. last year. Those bikes, they kind of had like a bit of a cult fan base on the internet. Um, how did that deal come about? And what did you market yourself as, as that time? Was it, because you're kind of stepping away from racing, mm-hmm. this internet that I was really taking off, the YouTube stuff was really blowing up, people were really to see a lot of insight, as well as your coaching business. Was it strange to kind of not be a racer first and foremost when it comes to pitching yourself for a contract? No, I think I think what Gigi already liked with uh, uh, like with me is the, the fact that I can do a lot of things. I can like I started my coaching business and it was already taking off. There was the YouTube aspect as well, and there was still the racing, like maybe a bit more local, not as pro. Um, but I, they thought that I could reach a lot of people, and I think to work with small brands. Well, like a, a small brand to work with someone like me, that's, that's what they see. They see a big potential for a lot of exposure, which happened. Like we already started to show like a, a big role in, uh, in Gigi. Like I started to see more Gigi's in the C2 sky yes. and like the sales were going up and it was, it was quite, um, it was quite, quite good actually, quite, quite uh, crazy to see that because we had, every week we had meetings with, uh, with the CEO, we win and we will go through the numbers and we will see the sales and everything. And it was, uh, it was super cool. All the time I would post like a new video, you would see a spike, poof, in the same wow. And then back down, and then another video, and then poof, the spikes in the same. It was kind of cool. You, you must have been very proud to have that on that journey. Yeah, it, it was something that really, uh, it was really fulfilling to, to feel like, okay, I can really help a brand to sell bikes. And then they are, it was, it was cool. It was a cool, a cool experience. And what was your contact like with, uh, the brand as they suddenly went into that hardship was it did you know early on was it was it kind of hoping to oh, explain from your side so we had um, I don't actually know what I'm what I'm allowed to say oh, but, I'm, I'm I'm gonna, but I can I can, yeah. I can I'm going to be transparent with a few things they kind of like May so it was May last year May, end of May last year that we had our, like a chat with Will the CEO and he was like okay you had the brand is not really going well. And I kind of, I kind of saw that coming because every time we were planning on having a new bike, like trying to like, okay, let's, let's build the downing bike. Because mm. at first when they hired me, we had all these plans to do all this like downing bike, a cross-country bike, like a new plateau, like a V2 front triangle, like really making the brand roll. And then all the time we were like pushing with the engineer, with Matt, the, the plans were getting uh, shut down. Mm. So at some point I was like, I don't think that the brand is doing so well. So when Will had this chat with me in May, June last year, I kind of I knew it. I was like, this is, yeah, this is not good. And, and, but at first we were chatting on having me part of the new ownership of the brand. So we started to like go through all the numbers and then seeing what's required to save the brand. Yeah. And at first I was super excited about this idea when he was like, hey, do you want to be part of this new ownership kind of thing? And super excited, super pumped. And then we went through all the numbers. And after a month, I was like, this is actually uh, this is a tough sell. Yeah, this is a bit sketchy. And we'll, 
make the current situation in the, in the outdoor market it is not a, not a smart move. And I'm glad I did that because now even Red is uh, sadly, yeah, sadly, yeah, it's gone. I think it's really interesting within, you know, within the, the sort of customer base. I think, I don't want to call it like cognitive dissonance. I don't think it's anything that profound, but people are really happy to see brands like Greta Gravity do things differently. Mm-hmm. And how many people, um, just as an observation, this isn't to let anyone's door because everyone's got their own constraints and money doesn't grow on trees. But we see Orange go under, Gorilla Gravity go under, also Orange enter administration, which is hopefully going to lead them into a better place. Um, even other brands like Eminent, which make kind of weird and wonderful things off on the side there. How many people that say perhaps in the comments, wow, this is so cool, or I'm so sad to see them go, then after typing that comment, go swing their leg over a stump jumper? Yes. You know? <laughs> and it's really, it must be, I think that we want to think that we want radical bikes, mm-hmm. but actually when it comes to our own money and it's completely fair, you know, I'm not, it's not a criticism, but it's an observation that when it comes to risk, actually that, I know that Scott or that Trek mm-hmm. or that giant looks slightly more appealing proposition. Um, you've had some weird and wonderful bikes, you know, like I said, you, you got to, got the honor of uh, destroying the bike industry with the Grim Donut. You've, um, <laughs> you've ridden some giants as, as they kind of really, you know, went through some, you know, loads of development. Um, the Common Styles, Good of Gravity, and now Da Vinci. What sort of bike do you think is good for the average person? What do you sort of bike do you think people should be wanting in terms of high pivot, mid pivot, you know, what, um, like, you know, geometry, any, any particular denotations or is there any observations you have from your coaching or anything like that? I think a good, uh, a good trail bike is way enough for the majority of people. Mm. Like a 150 rear, 170 maximum in the front. I think it's it's what the majority of people need. And if you if you can really uh, go through like the full um, capacity of the bike, I think it's uh, it's you're doing it's, good. Uh, you're doing good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the bike, the bike, the geometry. I think these days are are really on point. I think, and uh, and the bikes are super capable. It's kind it's kind of crazy actually. What the amount of things that we can do on a small bike. Like it's, it's quite incredible. Huh? Like if you yeah. see all the, the stuff we do in the C2Sky, we do everything on enduro bikes, trail bikes. When you never, would you never be tempted, especially for the Into the Nar stuff mm-hmm. or these huge, the Tour de Nar? Are you not a bit tempted to get, maybe get yourself a downhill bike and a set of stickers? You know, I mean, just for safety, isn't that what downhill bikes are meant for? But yes, I think that with, with all the things that we do right now, an enduro bike is enough. Now, if we want to push a bit further, I think we're going to need uh, bigger bikes. Mm. So I think for me, the chainsaw is going to be the bike that I'm going to ride for all this kind of stuff now. And would you go ever go to a like a downhill fork or do you want the kind of maneuverability of a single ground perhaps? I think a, a solid 180 fork in the front. I mean, it's a lot I of travel. It's, a, it's, a, it's already plenty. Mm. If, it's well, uh, if it's well set up, I think you have, you have plenty of travel here. I think the, the the double crown would like really help with rigidity and like if you really do like massive massive like the tuny drop, mm. big fork, big fork. fork. Yeah, um, it feels like yourself, um, Steve Vanderhoek and Remy Metallier have really kind of. It's always been there. I mean, obviously, free ride is sort of very much a sea to sky in its roots mm-hmm. in the you know in the interior too. Um, but it really feels like between the three of you, you've really helped reestablish 
this sort of new wave of free ride progression on enduro bikes in the sea to sky, big rock features, X, Y, Z. How was it coming into free ride? Because I like, for instance, my style of riding that I enjoy most is just trying to go quite quickly on trails. It's not creeping down gnarly rock faces and doing big hucks into things. It's not like no one's ever ridden that before. I can't imagine why and hiking my bike to the top. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, um, you know, what's, what was your management of like, you know, fear and composure compared to the race side coming into the free ride thing? Did mm-hmm. it feel like a different mindset perhaps? Definitely different mindset. I think for uh, when you line yourself up for, for an enduro race, there's nothing that's going to be too sketchy. Mm. You just have to be in the right mindset and there's that full process before like the practice and there's, there's, it's a full process before that race day. When you understand that process, everything kind of clicks and it's quite, you know, like it becomes your kind of routine. And then I think with free ride, it's exactly the same. Like there's a process that needs to happen before you send it. It's not, not every day just like, okay, let's go, let's go send. Like there's always that kind of process that you need to like uh, respect and approach mm-hmm. and then when the day is coming, that's, it's go time. But it's, and it's just understanding that thing. And then I think with Remy and Steve, what we've done is that we've really developed that approach to writing gnarly features and then repeat them. I think back in the days, it was more, not, not reckless in any ways, but I think it was really, um, I think they were, they were really hurting themselves. Yes. And then, and it was amazing to it was amazing to watch. But I think now what we're trying to do is ap- like approach things with more safety in a way. And for me, with my coaching, is to teach that to people now and really enable them and give them the key to okay, this is what you have to do, and that's how you that's how you succeed. In fact, a fourth name I'd add there would be someone like Nate Spitz, who and then, and is then, such as like flies under the radar. But he's one of, he works with you yeah. as one of your coaches. Yeah. Amazing rider. If you do one thing today, look up Nate Spitz. I think it's his name in reverse as an Instagram account. Yeah. It's like Zip something. Yeah, yeah. Um, amazing rider. Um, when it comes to when it comes to like these huge rock moves and stuff, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is there ever an element of hmm, maybe access is great, you know? But we're getting to the point now where maybe we're riding features that were originally made for quite a small number of people to mm-hmm. to go at. Um, now we have, you know, the tour de Nile. I mean, it's people, I really believe that people should be empowered to make their own decisions. You know, I'm not saying that I'm going to tell people what and what not to do, but filming on them, sort of giving people a huge level of insight, which 10 years ago would have probably been a small number of people yeah. with that sort of knowledge is largely a good thing. I think if it gets more people outside, stoked to mountain biking, enjoying themselves, that sounds fantastic. But is it ever a case of, you know, maybe giving people too like not too much too soon but leading up to maybe someone actually going to one of these features especially like squamish it's so obvious where this stuff is sometimes it's everywhere it's everywhere you look to the right you look oh, to the right. yeah <laughs> you look to the left oh there's another one but is that ever a consideration definitely but i think at some point the the things are so gnarly some of the staff are so gnarly that pe- when people show up for the first time they look at stuff and they're like oh it actually doesn't look the same in videos and I have so many of these kind of reactions of people with my coaching. Mm-hmm. Like my, my starting spring, summer, fall, I'm so busy with coaching. And there is so many people who come from pretty much anywhere in the world. And they are like in the, in the, the intake form. They say, I want to go see this feature of Tour de Nair. And like I, 
take them, not to write them, just so they see and, and they see the exposure. They see like all the risk that's, that's involved with the thing. And then most of the time people are like, no, there's no way I can do that. Yeah. So it's, it's really, at some point you, you, uh, you understand it. Like what you see in videos is definitely not the reality and videos don't show, they don't show the exposure. They don't show the massive rock that's at the bottom. They don't see, they don't show the tree that's, the trees that are everywhere actually. I, they don't show that. I've got a confession. I am terrified of rock rolls. So I was never scared. We should do a session together. Well, I was never scared <laughs> of rock rolls. I was having quite a nice summer. Yeah. Just doing whatever. It was all good. And then we did this video called um, it was like Budget versus Baller. Yeah. Basically, Levy was meant to do, but he um, he decided he didn't want to do it, and I got okay. drafted in. And he ordered these um, like these brakes for like fifteen, twenty dollars off Amazon. Okay. And I rode. It was only In and Out Burger. I've never ridden it before at that point. I was relatively to squamish. Okay. And the brakes just didn't work. I mean, they didn't work. I mean, <laughs> like they didn't work. I mean, basically, I think to be honest, I think the power of the brake was probably okay. What well, I think, I think it was really bad cheap pads. Okay. I tried to bed him around the car park, but dude, I was accelerating going down and it put us in this very inside part of my brain, this horrible fear about speeding up as you're trying to slow down on rock faces. And I was okay. I mean, I like, see on the video, I mean, I do a lot, a bit of poo does come out, <laughs> <laughs> but largely we're okay. Um, but I would, I walked away unscathed. Yeah. Some of these, these features, the, the injury seems so risk seems so high, mm-hmm. quite binary almost. Yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, Steve Vanderhoek had that really bad crash at the start of yeah, Tour de yeah, yeah. How do you reconcile that fear with composure? And is, is that part of the game, I suppose? Well, like, I think that's something that we really realized over the last uh, couple of years is that with the things we do, if you crash, there's no way around it, you're going to get hurt. Mm. And it's not just getting hurt, like a little scrape on your arm, a little bruise, like you're going to, you're going to break, break some something. bones. Yeah, you're going to break something. And uh, that's why that's why there's really that that process that you have to do before is super important. And if you approach things a bit kind of cocky and not really... Like having breaks that are $15. Having Would that be considered cocky? That's, that's, <laughs> but that, that's, that's a bit... Uh, that's definitely sketchy. Yep. That's definitely... <laughs> Do you know that in and out is actually, I think, the feature where they get the most uh, Elivac oh, really? in Squamish. Like, I think once every two weeks, there's an Elivac yeah, I can from the it. bottom of uh, in and out It's just accessible enough to think you can give it a go, but definitely sketchy enough. There's, these two, really... there's these two little, little moves in the middle, like mm. the, it gets a bit steeper. There's these two like little rolls that are a bit steeper. And if you don't have the braking technique, you start accelerating and the run out is not... Uh, the run out is not pretty. There's mm. that big hole and the two trees. Did you see that for a long time there was a brake lever into the tree at the bottom? No way. Someone removed it recently. I kinda, <laughs> see, whoever did that, this is actually not, uh, not good, but it was like a brake lever stack wow. into the tree at the bottom. Like if you look at these two trees, they are wrecked from people just yeah. hammering them. Oh, Crazy. Gnarly. I, my, me and my friend Max, who has actually the, you know, the production guy behind a pink bike who basically in the video world, Max does all the hard work and yeah. I do the other things. That's how, <laughs> that's how we do things up. Um, me and him, we often talk about like, we just, we're kind of overriding gnarly stuff. Mm-hmm. We don't be wrong. We, we give things a, a go as best we can, but we're not in it to scare ourselves like we once were. I think our egos have sort of changed over the years. I think as young twenties, you don't realize it at the time and I'm not, I can't comment on other people's experience, mm-hmm. but 
I was probably trying to I put too much stock in how other people thought I rode a bike. Um, has your relationship with risk changed a bit over the years, especially with father, fatherhood? Did that change mm-hmm. it at all? Not really. <laughs> no, it's just fair enough. I mean, there's I a reason th- you're a professional that, and I'm not. <laughs> I think I think that now what I'm what I'm really trying to do is to not do things with uh, like ego based. Mm. I know that if I approach something like if, for example, I'm riding with Remy and then Remy does something. Uh, that's kind of crazy and if I don't feel it that day I'm not going to do it mm. like I'm going to leave my ego at home and I'm simply not going to do it now I think that's that's super important and that's the key for uh, longevity in this sport and you know with yourself Remy I mean I think Steve moved more into the um, sort of the slope style thing mm-hmm. initially and then kind of came to the free ride stuff and you and Remy both kind of gave World Cup racing a red hot crack and it didn't quite fall into place for either of you but mm-hmm. now you're both known as these amazing technicians in terms mm-hmm. of the free ride side of things. Do you think it was a case of your skill set wasn't quite suited to World Cup racing and then you found the thing that it was suited to or that you made your skill set suit this thing after not having the, the results in World Cup racing perhaps you would have liked? Yeah, I don't know actually. That's a good, uh, it's a good question. I think, uh, I think for me, racing, the, the World Cup staff, if I had the support right away, mm. it might have worked. Yeah. I don't know. And Joel worked. If you had the Grim Donut 20 years ago, mate. Exactly. <laughs> Triple <laughs> world champion, you're Amborelli. <laughs> Give me the Grim Donut in uh, EWS, in, uh, like in Chile. Yeah. Oh my God. Like those fast tracks, I would have won by like a minute mm. in front of Samir. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think it. Yeah, car- you know, career kind of evolves. I think now the with the free ride thing, we we kind of develop that kind of technique. But but it's the same. Like you know, like there's nothing that we do here in the C2 Sky that's rampage size, really. Mm-hmm. So it's big, relatively talking. Yes, it's it's not huge. There's a few huge. Like if you are Caleb, like he completely. Uh, Got the right, he completely, uh, yeah, it was insane what he did, and that's that for me. That's really free ride, that's that's really ballsy. What we do here, we are we are riding triple black diamond trails, or yes, quadruple black diamond trails. Quad, well, I think we'll call them quadruple, quadruple, <laughs> quadruple black diamond <laughs> trails. Um, when you went to see uh, Red Bull Rampage a couple, not, sorry, yeah. Red Bull Hardline a couple of years yeah. ago. But I was there, I was there to actually do it. Yeah, you were there. But I didn't. I, I didn't. I don't want to say that. You know? <laughs> uh, your words are not mine. I mean, I wouldn't have done it either. For the record, I wouldn't have even got on the plane. How much did it, um? How much? Because people watch. Like I've been to the venue. I've, I've seen mm-hmm. it. It is terrifying. It is wild. Like yeah. Um. I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh well, the jumps aren't for me. But I'd get down the tech. But the tech is actually pretty techy as well. Like that janky stuff into the road gap. Is is wild. Yeah, when I was so when I was there, I think it was the it was in 2017. So it was the second year, I think, of Hardline. It was pissing rain. The rain as well, and it's like it that was, rock uh, is so slippy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, nothing like Squamish at all. No. And um, <laughs> so in 2017, I was really like in full on enjoy, and I remember comments. I told comment. I got invited, and I told commensal, okay, I need a downhill bike, and they sent me. I think it was their first actually high pivot bike, 27.5 high pivot. And uh, like I didn't have enough time to get used to it. So I showed up to Hardline. Uh, Dave Garland, Danny Arts, ex-mechanic, was my mechanic. Um, and 
We did a few testing and I showed up to the venue. We did a track walk and it was insane. It was completely insane. Like the, the beats in between the big features were actually so crazy. Like the, the technicity of the, the venue was insane. And so we did the first day of practice and I think I wrote like, let's say 69% of the course, <laughs> 70% of the course. And uh, <laughs> there was a few features that I didn't do. And I was like, okay, if tomorrow, if at the end of the first day of practice, I was like, if tomorrow it's raining like that, I'm not going to take the start. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, um, I can't risk it. And we were 21 invited that year. Only, I think, 11 took the start of the quali. Everybody got Craig injured. Craig Evans won. Been that That's year? the year of Craig yeah. Evans won. And then I think only seven took the start of the final. Yes. It was a carnage. They had to stop the, for, for a long time. They had to stop the course. They chopped off some roots, broke some rocks. It was, it was unrideable. Yeah. It was crazy. And then now with, with the evolution of it, I think the, the technical beats are becoming more kind of, um, not, not a plane, but a bit more like World Cup style, you know, like mm -hmm. faster, less technical. The jumps are massive still, but it's more uh, high speed, less technical in a way. Um, but it's, it's, it's insane. Insane. Oh, it's insane. It is, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember being there a couple of years ago and because you qualify, I think that the year I was there anyway, it was the top 12 qualified. Yeah. And the person sat in 12th, I'm not going to say who it was, but they were just like hoping and praying that someone bumped them out. It's because like there's that, there's that backwards engineering of you, the ego. Yeah. Where oh, I can't, I don't have to feel in any way sort yeah. of embarrassed for not wanting to do it yeah. then. Because I really wanted to. And then he got in and he said to me like, yeah, I'm pretty happy, but honestly, I'd probably been a bit happier if I, did. If I got bumped to 13th, you know? Like for me, like making that, that uh, decision and being like, you know what, I'm not taking the start. Mm. It, it was hard in a way, like ego, like same thing for the ego, like announcing publicly, you know, okay, well, I'm not taking the start because mm. this is too hard for me. But at the same time, it was, it was such a relief. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm out. Have fun, guys. Well, that's always the sign, you know, when you do get, you know, whether it's making dinner plans and someone cancels and if you feel relief, you probably yeah. weren't really into it anymore. No, exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. Yeah, it was a... Uh, And, you know, you mentioned um, Dave Garland there. Yeah. Um, who sort of worked really close with Danny Hart. Yeah. Um, sadly passed away a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Known in, in mechanic circles as someone that did a lot of work in terms of data acquisition, like, you know, setting the foundation. Yeah. Um, had some really interesting ideas in terms of setup. He was working with Elliot Jackson a couple of years ago. And Elliot and I kind of go way back because he would do his summers in Queenstown and come to the shop I worked at. And, you know, I remember... As far as I'm aware, the, the situation was Dave didn't want Giant to have like a rim sponsor mm -hmm. because he didn't want a rim that was, um, and I don't want to like put words in my mouth. This, this is the impression I got. He didn't want a rim that was made to last, like a consumer would want it, last forever. Mm -hmm. He wanted a rim that was soft enough that it would last one run. Yes. And low tension enough. And basically yeah. just like, he had really no interest. Tension, yeah. yeah. He had no interest in... He was, sorry, not, and that's maybe for Sarah. He acknowledged the different needs of the racer yeah. compared to the reliability needs and the longevity needs yes, of the customer. Sir. And Ellie used to run these rims that were basically OE rims that he would buy in bulk for like 15 euros each, run them low tension. And obviously great for racing, mm -hmm. but in the bike park when he was trying to train and he was doing rim a run as well, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was super frustrating. Um, did Dave impart any wisdom or advice on you that kind of, in regards to setup, that, that you kind of kept with you or? Or anything that kind of made you really question how you set up your bike? 
Dave was really always an advocate of like actually quite soft suspension mm. in a way, which I don't do at all. I'm always like riding really kind of stiff suspensions. And do you use your full travel ever? Or do you just want the consistency on the, of the On the ride stuff that we do here, definitely. Well, that's, but if you had a downhill bike, you could have it soft, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember, for example, showing up at the, the, the Crankworx Enduro last year. And then I remember just the morning of the, the, the race, there was Jesse Melamed just beside me. And I took his bike and I kind of squished a little bit his suspension. I was like, holy shit, your suspension are so soft. And he was like, but dude, like the tracks are so gnarly and so uh, like, like rough. Mm. that you're going to get cooked and I went back to my car and I just <laughs> <laughs> took 20 pieces 20 PSI off yeah, I'm back. and I'm really uh, thankful for, for Jesse for that but yeah for uh, I think Dave the he yeah I think he was such a, um, a technician with all these things and then unfortunately I don't think I learned enough from, uh, from Dave on this side mm. but it was always such a pleasure to, uh, to be with him at the, at the races and having a he had such a great sense of humor and always gi giving you like a big insight on, on things in no, life and the technician bike stuff. Yeah, he was never someone that I am. Um, I mean, I think I said hello to him once mm -hmm. or twice. He's someone that has sort of an aspiring mechanic on other yeah. teams, you know. I would always look up to him and be like, oh my God, that's like, I was a bit of a, bit of a fan. Um, and it's funny, there were definitely like different rungs of mechanics at World Cup level. Mm -hmm. I'd always say I'm mediocre, which I was at best. Because when compared to someone like that, oh, yeah. how could I say that I was a good yeah. mechanic? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it would be embarrassing. Oh, exactly. You know? um, I remember as well, like he used to do really interesting things. Like he used to, he was concerned about coil binders when the box was still a coil yeah. fork. And so he'd take the shrink wrap off. Yeah. But then the forks were so noisy. You know, you'd hear the, the his, oh, yeah, his riders yeah, come yeah, down yeah, the hill that. because it'd be rattling the, in there. The, the spring was rattling inside. Yeah. Um, I heard other things, you know, drilling out rebound circuits to get that soft, fast <laughs> forks. And once your rebound's faster, you can run your, your spring rate softer. Yeah. And um, yeah, super interesting, um, super interesting hearing about his work. And I imagine working with him was a, a real insight as well. Like Dave was actually the, he was the guy with Colin Bailey who prepared my cross bike to race A-line during Crankworx. <laughs> and he was, he was just like, you're such an idiot. He <laughs> was like, I can't, I can't believe I'm doing that. Like he was just like bending shit and stuff to make it, uh, to make it work. But it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, and then coming from, you know, we said about steadily the, the sort of demise of, um, of Gorilla Gravity mm -hmm. and then wrapping up things uh, mid last year. Well, coming back to where you are now, well, a lot of people in this silly season having a hard time finding rides what was it like learning up the da vinci thing in the midst of this sort of cost of living crisis all mm -hmm. these difficult things and going to a brand and be like listen i got a phone call yesterday saying i no longer have a job basically let's put something together mm -hmm. were there other brands you were speaking to was it with it was it relatively easy was it talk us through with the experience of that i think i got really lucky to be honest because I was probably one of the first one to get kind of dropped in the middle of the season, mm. first rider. And, uh, and the Da Vinci thing kind of happened quite, uh, quite fast, actually. Because so when we were talking with Will, the CEO of, the, of Guerrilla Gravity, to like be like this ownership kind of thing, Will contacted Da Vinci to see if they would be able to, like what are the quantity requires and everything, to have Gigi bikes made by Da Vinci. Right, in, uh, yes. Because they Quebec. make, um, yeah, make them. Quebec. Quebec. Yeah. And then 
And so I, I, we went through this thing and we went through the numbers and stuff. And at some point I made my mind, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely not going to pursue this route with Gigi. Um, and I remember like early July last year, I got a message from Bastian, who is the, the team manager of the DaVinci factory. Mm -hmm. And he sent me a message on Instagram. He's like, hey, when are we discussing uh, Johan Barilli joining uh, DaVinci? I was like, well, now. <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram, that's, that's one on Instagram. sliding into and DMs then, uh, that you're thankful but we, for. But we kind of knew each other from, from racing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we had the first chat together and we kind of explored a little bit the, 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 the possibility of working together. At the same time, I was also chatting with We Are One. Um, and they both knew huh? like with that, that I was uh, in discussion with these two, but I was really... Um, focusing on these two brands huh? because of the fact that they are the ones who actually make their bikes in Canada yes. and DaVinci is really pushing that and we are one are completely doing that also in Kamloops so that was really like the two brands that I was really looking forward to work with because because of that mm -hmm. that kind of environmental and impact as well and trying to work with North, North American brands um, and then with DaVinci kind of Went, went ahead, bigger brands, um, more, more projects, more bikes, and, uh, and the, the, the fact that we knew each, there was also this kind of friendship with, mm -hmm. with Bastien, and then it kind of it happened. But it happened really quickly. I signed my contract September 1st, and then we announced October, and then that was it. I was rolling. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike because I believe this is only my opinion, so feel free to just dismiss it entirely. No, I really believe that people doing cool, interesting content mm -hmm. should be supported. I, I think that sounds great. But also, I love the idea of racing teams being supported. I love the idea of grassroots mm -hmm. racing being supported. As someone that's seen both sides of it, both being a racer and now more towards, you know, being this sort of, when they say go back to racing, but being mm -hmm. having so many different avenues, not mm -hmm. only the coaching business, but also being an ambassador, making the content. Was it weird to see yourself go on with DaVinci pushing into this free ride scene, more power to them? Mm -hmm. um, and then that DaVinci factory enduro team. Hey, was that strange for you, like kind of being the other side of it? Because I'm sure 10 years ago when you were trying to get your enduro deal, yeah. if you'd been like, you'd be like, why not? No, not free ride in Jura. Yeah. Free dead. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I completely understand as well. Like I think with the with what happened with the Enduro series and the fact that the the UCI kind of take took over. Like for, for me, from the outside, like it completely makes sense that brands are kind of dropping a little bit the Enduro because like there was no way last year to follow the races. There was there was no way. So for as a as a brand. I don't think that they really saw the return on investment. I don't think that Enduro is dead, actually. I don't, I don't think that maybe Enduro racing at a high level might be dead for like the way it was back in the days. Because what was beautiful with Enduro is the fact that there was pros and non-pros all together competing mm -hmm. together. And that was, that was beautiful. And that's, that's really the roots and the spirit of Enduro at the beginning when it, was, when it started. Like when I showed up in Ponta Ada, I was an amateur and I showed up over there and it was all these pros and it was kind of beautiful to, to mix everybody together and create this thing. And that was, that was, I think for me, the spirit of Enduro. And I think that now you have local races that are actually doing that. So I think the future of Enduro 
is actually maybe more local stuff. Mm. Like the Pemberton Enduro, the Squamish Enduro, all these kind of races that are kind of enabling the amateurs and the pros all together. And I think that, to be honest, some of these races, there's probably more media coming out of them than the actual World Cup series right now. Mm. So, But also those places are not, you know, you can have, the reason that the Enduro in Pemberton works really well, or the Enduro in Squamish works really well, mm-hmm. is this is an excellent Enduro, enduro venue. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, I think I really kind of admire the ambition to present mm-hmm. the Enduro World Cups as a holistic thing that's in bed with the downhill World mm-hmm. Cups. And the, but there's a reason that Leergang didn't have an Enduro before. Yeah. Because there's no terrain. It just there's I mean, no terrain. It's, I mean, I've, I've not to bag on just one spot, but when you're at the, normally the mechanics get up early and you go mm-hmm. ride the trails. And in Fort William, for instance, you're very lucky. Yeah. There's trails by the pits. Mm-hmm. It's great. Somewhere like Leogang, you might have a spin up a fire road, 50 meters of walking track, yeah. 200 meters of fire road, and then climbing over a barbed wire fence, yeah. which, was, which genuinely was my loop in 2018 yeah, yeah. in Enduro of what you yeah. could go ride. Um, so I think they, it's probably quite hard to reconcile that. I mean, I think the best thing about the Enduro stuff is if you live a couple of hours away from Pemberton and you want to ride the best trails in the area, you can just go along with some friends, mm-hmm. have that low-key exploration that you wouldn't get in downhill. No. Downhill, you'd find one, one track. One and, track and you and, repeat the same track. And that would be it. Um, but I do think it is a difficult situation. I think that racing at an elite level like, I don't think Enduro is dead. I think it's very exciting yeah. to be like, oh, so fatalistic. Oh, it's dead. Yeah. And then downhill's dead. And then oh, this is dead. Like things, Freeride didn't die. It just changed a bit. Exactly. And Enduro might need to change a bit yeah. too. But I think that some of the changes might, might be needed. Some of them might be helpful. And in 10 years time, we'll still have Enduro and it'll still be really good. It might yeah, be a bit different. Yeah, it would be different. It would be maybe a different format, but it's still, it will still exist. It'll still be existing. Yeah. Um, speaking of events, um, I think we do need to talk about Tour de Nard. Yeah. Um, it started off from the outside. It looked like the first time it was basically you and Steve yeah. having just a weird day together, doing gnarly stuff. I imagine you went through some tremendous highs, tremendous lows. It sounds exhausting. Um, how's it developed? And what's it like now when you've got not only doing gnarly, exciting stuff, there's also an audience there, which there wasn't initially. No. What's it been like? If you talk us through kind of the development over the years and, and how it's changed slightly, that'd be really interesting. Well, so, so the idea behind Tour de Nard is the, um, we were always doing like one or two gnarly features a day. And I think coming from racing and draw, which the days are massive and it's hard and you're in pain and it's, it's a bit of a suffering, no matter what, you're going to suffer. No matter your level, you're going to suffer during an enduro. I was kind of like trying to recreate a little bit this kind of day, like a bit of an hard enduro or something like that, something really, uh, really tough. And so I had this idea of like, well, what about we challenge ourselves and we do like the, all the gnarliest features in the sea to sky in one day. And for this, I kind of needed some people to help me. And so I, I, I told the idea to Steve and then right away he was like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, I said that to Remy, and Remy was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve was on board. And then the first year, we, we did, I think it was 14 features in one day. We started super early from Pemberton, and we made it all the way down to Vancouver. And we finished on a busted axe wound, like the feature that where Steve kind of wrecked himself the year after. And, uh, and it was massive. Like, we went 
it was actually quite crazy. Like mentally, the exhaustion mentally, because you always, you have to be in that zone for one feature and then you do it and it was always one and done. So you do that feature once and then boom, we move on to the next one. And uh, exhaustion mentally, physically, like it's a huge day, like 16, 17 hours. And, uh, but it was amazing. Like the sense of accomplishment at the end of that one day was, was completely crazy. And uh, people loved it. We made a video out of it. People loved it. And we were like, okay, well, we're onto something here. So next year, we, I was kind of the one pushing to have more people involved. And I wanted to share this day with, with more people. So we invited a few more friends. And uh, I think we were 10. Camille Yogira was the first uh, woman a couple years ago. And I remember showing up. So we did it in reverse a couple years ago. We started with Vancouver and we finished in Pemberton. And I remember climbing up to Steve's line. And I remember some of the riders were like, oh, it looks so fun. It's going to be cool. And I was like, this is not fun. This is terrifying. <laughs> mm. Like is, this, this line is actually, uh, it's a monster. Is that the one that Steve hurt himself? Yeah, yes, that's, it that's a monster. It's a... Uh, it's one of these lines where you show up from the bottom and you look at it and you're like, that's uh As once you're in, you're kind of into it, right? Once you're in, you're in. There's, yeah. no, there's no turning back. There's no, you're in, you're in. And so Steve opened it. And I think that he, like he was super keen to start the day, like really, uh, like good energy, super motivated. And he, it was his feature and he just like dropped into it when it's something where maybe you should creep into it. And mm -hmm. he just like, pfft just went and then carried quite a bit of speed and then started to accelerate and then, and then ate shit and wrecked himself. First thing, first mm -hmm. guy dropping down. Everybody was shocked, like mm -hmm. shocked. The silence was insane. Especially someone like Steve who has this amazing like persona. He kind of, he's, a... he's so, I think he's really kind of comfortable with himself and he kind of exudes this confidence mm -hmm. of all the people to hurt themselves first thing. I imagine for, I would imagine, or they're, they're probably people thinking, well, throughout the day, we've always got Steve to rely on for insight, for, yes. you know, for leadership, for, yeah. you know, coaching almost. Exactly. And to see him go down must have been really uh, it shocking. Was, it was tough. It was, it was shocking. Like we, we actually, I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy shit, that's, uh, well, that's it. The day, the day is done. But then he was, he really insisted for us to like continue. And we decided. <laughs> he was like, go on. We're like, we, we don't want to, Steve. He was like, no, no, go on. They're like, ah. <laughs> we decided. <laughs> we decided to not do that feature. Mm. And I think that actually we got super lucky because if Steve didn't crash, I think that some of the riders would have tried this line and it could have been way worse. Right, yes. Because looking at the braking control of, of some of them on the, the second line, like it could have been really, really bad. Mm. Like someone, yeah, yeah. We we don't know, because especially with the exposure on that. Feature. With the exposure, yeah. it's actually quite, uh, quite crazy. I've done this line once the the year before, and I remember dropping into it. I was like, wow, this is uh, the gnarliest thing I've I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, do you think? I think the detractors from something like Dordana would say mm -hmm. that doing essentially, or things of that magnitude, things that difficult probably isn't best done in a large group with the complications of group dynamics and ego. What would you, what would you say to that, do you think? So, so, this, so last year, 2023, um, we had a way bigger group, like mm. 35 people at the start, mm -hmm. probably 25 at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Furly Five, and then we it was kind of a bit of a test to see like the, the group dynamic for this kind of this kind of stuff, and then see how like the the things kind of shift. And um, we started on In and Out, and the goal with In and Out it the thing with last year is that it rained two days before the tour as well, like peace rain. I remember meeting again meeting Nate. It's mm -hmm. funny because it was the night. It was the day after, I believe, the yeah. Deep Summer Photo Contest. Yes. And I met, he came back from building. He was just walking through the village. Yes. At like 11 o'clock, like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. And he's just such a, <laughs> such a, like just such a hard worker. Like he was back out riding yeah. it the next day. But it sounds like the preparation to that was very difficult. Hey, yeah, because we wanted to have a few new things. So we, the two weeks leading to the tour, it was, it was insane. Like, after coaching, just like going to some features, like restoring them, like like huge work. But what we what we saw as well is that a lot of the riders who wanted to take part of the tour really offered to help. And we created this full community where sometimes we were like 20 people showing up to one feature and like rebuilding the thing and then reshaping stuff and then making it, preparing that gnarly day. And we really had a, a huge sense of community, like really people getting together and, and creating things together. And it was amazing. And rain two days before, uh, quite sketchy. At first I was like, should, should we go ahead? But it was during Crankworks and everybody was there and I was like, we have, to, we have to do it. So we showed up on in and out that morning. There was a bit of a crowd, which was kind of cool as well. 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and then I was like, okay, there's three lines here. Just do what you want. This is this is the warm up, and and then right away there was there were crashes a bit everywhere, like slippery, like super super slippery crashes everywhere, and the morning in Squamish was was super intense. It was actually quite crazy, and I think it's it's kind of it's kind of it took a bit for the for the group to find its way mm. in a way. It was a bit uh, kind of go, 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 not too much time to look at stuff. And we had a lot of crashes in Squamish in the morning. Mark Matthews wrecked himself on Goanga, on the drop, on the surgeon in Goanga as well. A lot of crashes as well. And as soon as we left Squamish, we didn't really take a break in Squamish. As soon as we left Squamish, people went back to their cars. We had a little reset, had a little speech because the staff in Whistler is way more exposed. And way more dangerous in a way. And the rock's a bit different as well. The rock is different. There's, it's, uh, the jumps are bigger and it's more exposed. So if you make a mistake, it, it really is going to go bad. And so we really made sure everybody understood that. And we really made sure, take your time. We have, we have quite a bit of time. We we're kind of ahead of schedule. Let's take our time. Let's really look at stuff. And if you don't feel it, just like take your time. Just mm. uh, take another 10 minutes to look at it. And then the dynamic completely changed. And then we had uh, like a really, really successful afternoon until we got to the second last feature. And then Felipe uh, Barberis from Argentina had a crash and then he, uh, he broke his back. Wow. Shit. Yeah. And that's how oh, we yeah. ended up the Tour de Nerve last year. Yeah. It's, um, it's quite a strange thing, I think. Like you said, group dynamics, um, people coming to, because Squamish riding is different. Mm -hmm. What you can expect from the rock is different. And then yeah. you go, then you're probably just getting used to that. And then you go to Whistler and the rock's so different. Yeah, it's, the, rock's it's is more, the rock is more slippery. More slippery. And, yeah. Um, how do you go back about inviting people to the, 
to the tour. And is it ever a case of people wanting to join that you don't think are quite suited to it or, or they're going to be able to showcase their best? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can be an amazing bike rider and not be suited to something exactly. like that. Um, is there any complications with, again, with ego and things like that about explaining to people, I want you to be safe. This isn't for you. Yeah. So the way I did it last year, I, I sent same thing, Instagram. I sent like a group message to Android people. A bunch of like the, the best riders in the world. And then I think only maybe 15 say that they were in. And from, from this, like starting to tease a little bit about the tour, I started to receive quite a few messages from other people that are kind of more underground riders mm-hmm. in a way. And then that's, that's also the goal with the tour is that I want, I want to mix pro riders and really up and coming riders mm-hmm. as well. Female and males, I want everybody to be kind of mixed together. And it's, it's for me, it's an opportunity for underground riders to show what they can do on the bike. And I think this year we've, we've seen a lot of young talents really shine. And then, for example, having someone like Johnny Salido, like it was not easy for Johnny. Like he's a Red Bull athlete, he's mm. a free rider, well-known free rider. And it was hard. Like it was, it was hard for him. So it was, it was kind of cool to see that. Mm. And uh, How did he take that? Did he... Do you think he loved it? He and loved I, it. like Johnny is going to be back this year. Cool. Like he has no choice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but um, no, he loved it. I think, and I think it's not uh, the goal of it. It's not a, it's not a competition. It's not a contest. Mm. It's really a day where we are all together and we, we are going to ride some now. Mm. Well, I, th- I think I've spoken about it before, but I consider mountain biking to be a personal practice, much mm. in the same way yoga is. I don't care if you can touch your toes. I'm there to see if I can touch my toes. Yeah, And exactly. if I can't touch my toes, I shouldn't feel embarrassed just because you can. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And I think that's also the, in, in the morning, we have a little bit of a speech about safety and the way to approach stuff. And we really emphasize the fact that if you don't feel something, just simply don't do it. Because mm. we don't have much time and the goal is to finish the day all together. Yes, totally. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's weird because bravery in terms of stepping up to do something Sometimes the bravest thing you can do is acknowledge that you don't want to do it. Exactly. And not let the ego win. Like um, last year, I didn't do everything. Like the surgeon, like the one of the... The surgeon looks I didn't, I didn't do it. I did it the year before, and it's something that I do once in a while. But that day, during the tour, I, I was like, okay, I'm the one who's kind of leading the thing. And if I wreck myself here, there's no me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is done. Yeah. So I really, uh, sorry, I really felt like I should not, uh, I should not be doing that. I was not feeling really... 100% sure about it. And I, I didn't do it. Um, you mentioned that you were kind of leading back into racing, thinking about it. Can you talk us through what your plans are? Because I'm, I'm very interested as much as anything. And much as you can say, perhaps. And uh, yeah, take it away. So, yeah, I think a couple of weeks ago, I kind of announced a little bit on social, not announced, like I kind of did a post and I was like, okay, this year I want to do a few more races. And by doing that, I kind of planted a little bit of a seed. You know, sometimes you have to plant a little seed like that. <laughs> and, then, um, and then a few days later, I received a cool email from, uh, from Red Bull to go do the uh, Red Bull Chero Abajo, like the uh, Urban DH in uh, Valparaiso and the full series. So I said yes. Good, good on you. And uh, the series is starting early March. Uh, in, uh, in Chile, in Valparaiso. So I'm going to do that. And then there's the next round in Mexico just after that. So I'm going to do those. And I'm kind of scared because I've, I've done one race like that in the past. I've gone 
Taxco in 2016. So it's eight years ago. And I haven't raced really in a long time. So I need to prepare for that. It's short amount of time to get ready for that. So I'm like full on back at the gym and like I'm gonna I'm going to Mexico for a camp in uh, Oaxaca early February. So I'm gonna use this time to really prepare myself, find some sketchy stairs and then go full gas down these things and then try to really have my brain unlocked for, uh, for Valparaiso. Um, so that's, that's something that's super excited. All, all the sponsors are super, super pumped as well. I have full on, uh, full support from, from them. And, uh, and then doing some enduro as well. Like I'm going to do all the local stuff, uh, Pambi, Squamish, uh, few BC enduros as well. There is the Psychosis race as well that's coming back and I'm going to do that. Super cool. Um, and then developing Tour de Nard. So Tour de Nard is growing and we're going to have probably a round of the Tour de Nard in Oaxaca, in Mexico, this year, early December. And we might have a summer edition of Tour de Nard in the Sea to Sky and we might have a wet edition of the Tour de Nard <laughs> in the Sea to Sky <laughs> to make things a little bit spicier. <laughs> It sounds like, you know, I've seen some videos of you out there coaching in Mexico. Um, I spent a bit of time in South America in, South America in 2022 and it felt to me, someone, you know, who works in the media, you know, in mountain biking, there's such a huge audience in South America. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm not sure if the mountain biking, the North American and sort of English speaking mountain biking media takes the South American contingent mm -hmm. seriously enough or, or, you know, Central American with Mexico there. Um, in terms of, you know, we think that, I don't know why, I think there's some, not, I'm much, I can only speak English, so I'm much of the problem myself, but in some ways we kind of think that mountain biking happens in English. And of course it doesn't. I mean, like, you know, look mm -hmm. at the French or Italian or, or any, any num other, other number of scenes. Um, how, what's the scene like in Mexico? Because I've met so many passionate, yeah. you know, Chileans, Argentinians and Me Mexicans about mountain biking. And do you think it could be like a new frontier for the industry to go into, like just in terms of, not so much in terms of monetizing, but just in terms of catering it to it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think it'd be really great to see, you know, Pink Bike Espanol, for instance, you know, I think it'd be super definitely. cool. Definitely. I think there's a, I think the, the market is definitely growing over there and the, the trails as well, like the trails are growing, there's more and more. And I think for me, for us, it's such an easy trip as well, like leaving the, taking a little break for winter, from winter, going to Mexico, short trip. And uh, I think there's, there's big opportunities to do stuff over there and people are, people are really keen. And there's, uh, the vibe is different in Mexico. People are more happy. They are kind of like, they are, keen to, they are just keen to do anything. Yeah. There's, there's no rules really. <laughs> yeah. They just, uh, okay, let's do that. Okay, let's do it. Mm. They just, you know, it's, it's kind of more free in a mm. way. This kind of, this kind of country. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things to do over there. Amazing. Well, it sounds like we've got so much to look forward to. Thank you for um, taking the time to visit us at Thank Pink so Bike much, HQ. Henry. And um, best of luck with all your endeavours this year. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. And we are back. So again, a special thanks to both Jan for coming down the office to talk a load of nonsense with yours truly, as well as those who persevered through that first half an hour of T-Pain style audio. I think we should have put it up. I think we should have put a drum beat to it and just gone full, fully committed to the auto-tune. 
Um, now, Yeran's obviously made sort of a, a name for himself in so many different facets of the sport, not least through his coaching. Sarah, have you ever had any mountain bike coaching? If not, why not? And when was the last time you got a second opinion on how, how you ride bikes? Because maybe it's something we could all do a little bit better for. Yeah, I guess I had a coach when I was racing cross country back in the day. And, you know, we would learn how to go up hills and over rocks and stuff like that. But I haven't had a ton of, you know, downhill coaching in my life. And it is something that I always think that would be good to do. And then each year I put it on my list to do. And I don't know, it never gets, it, it hasn't, I don't remember the last time I did a live, um, live has this where they close down a line every year during crankworks, And I did that a couple years ago and got coached on the a line jump. So that was probably like three or four years ago. Um, was it useful? It was absolutely useful. Like I would love to do that again. So maybe if they're doing it again this year, I don't actually know it usually like sells out within, you know, a couple minutes cause it's a free three hours of riding on a line with a coach which i mean it's so it's a pretty cool big value if you were to pay for that for yourself so um absolutely yeah jario have you ever done any have had any coaching do you think that do you think it's a benefit i think it's a benefit um kaz has repeatedly referred to my foray into mountain biking as outsider art which means i just spent a lot of time alone in the woods <laughs> i think <that laughs> on your own really <laughs> <laughs> remains to be the way that I've uh, learned how to do things. Um, I think like it, it's not coaching, but like riding with people who are way better than you is always informative. And like I try to do a lot of that. So kind of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's fair. And how, how about you, Alicia? Did you, have you ever had any coaching? I'm trying to think that through and I don't really have a very definite answer for you. I guess a tiny bit when I first started racing cross country, a little bit similar to Sarah, and then also a little bit similar to Dario. My style of approaching mountain biking has mostly just been kind of just winging it and making it up <laughs> as I go. And I'm not especially great at planning ahead and being systematic about how I want to do things. And so I think it would be incredibly beneficial for me to get advice from someone who knows more than I do. But also the way I've approached it so far has mostly just been like, really making it up as I've been going. Um, but I did actually have a fitness coach for a season and that was pretty sweet. Like that was, I guess the season that I was most serious about racing and it was great. Like just having someone to stay that accountable to. And, um, it, yeah, really, really helped me. And I was kind of still working through the bike technical stuff on my own, but then having the fitness to back it up was great. I, um, when I was working for Pink Rock Racing, I'd often ask Cathro for coaching. And I think he deemed me uncoachable, lost cause. He was just like, I'm on a hundred percent record of making people better at riding bikes, but you, <laughs> you're like a perfect yeah, storm of stubborn, bad, <laughs> uncoordinated. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to dirty my record. Yeah. You haven't um, featured in any of the how to bike series, you know, he's got <laughs> not for lack of trying. And and you're like me, coach me, please. Yeah. I mean, he's amazing. He, I'm sure he could make you better. <laughs> I think we should do a video just like not how to bike, how not to bike. And it's one episode of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd be happy to moonlight in that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, let's get into Music Corner, folks. Who wants to add it first? Alicia, what would be your suggestion for Music Corner this week? 
Hmm. Since I am entirely a creature of habit, I'm going to go back to my tradition of recommending NPR Tiny Desk concerts. Um, and one I like this week, there's an artist named Ray, R-A-Y-E. And I just think her Tiny Desk concert is really good, has a great feel. So I, I recommend listening to it. Dario, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a song by the band Bardo Pond. It's knew it. Pond. Knew it. Uh, you, knew, that, you knew that it was going to be that. Yeah, I knew it was going to be that. I was like, another predictable choice from Dario, straight off Radio 1. <laughs> yeah, right off Radio 1. Spot, Spotify Top 100 Listens, classic That's Dario. Right. Um, it's called Tommy Gun Angel. It's a pleasant and noisy song. That's how I will describe it. I think they feature on Tay Tay's latest track, no? Who? <laughs> <laughs> oh taylor swift yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah similar stuff yeah people are making sports bets on whether bardo pond shows up to the uh super bowl or not <laughs> yeah they're one of those Sarah. bands that's been oh, making God. music for like 30 years and has produced like an album every year and i don't know if they've ever gotten like terribly popular but they are very consistent if anything very nice sarah how about yourself? So you're saying I can't recommend Taylor Swift? <laughs> Please, how about it? <laughs> no, I'm going to say my, uh, it's called the My Silver Lining by First Aid Kit. It's Great just, song. Uh, okay, nice. nice. I got it. <laughs> I think, I think that, You've heard I mean, it. <laughs> you kind of just, you just kind of alluded it to there, to it there, but pop music can sometimes seem like a dirty word, but it's popular for a reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, statistically, music, most people are going to like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but like the Beatles are pop music, but only later on do they get kind of called like rock and all this business. Well, maybe that's not true, but you know what I mean? But mm. pop music is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my suggestion this week is something very different for me. It's something that just is more of a spectacle than a song. <laughs> but I came across this meme that had a great song and I went down a rabbit hole and I found it. And it's Ricky Dillard and New G sold out featuring Valerie Griffin and this gospel choir Go to like two minutes in the track and it is just amazing. The organization they have, it just blew my mind. I listened to it loads and it just makes me, makes me really, really happy. So I thought I'd, uh, thought I'd share it with you all. But that is it from the Pink Bike Podcast this week. Thank you very, very, very much for listening. And get in the comments below and get in some questions about Gearbox bikes because I realized I didn't talk about it at all early on and I will do my best to answer some next week. Thanks, guys, and we'll catch you later.